We're putting science in the spotlight. Hello, and welcome back to this podcast. In the Spotlight, the science podcast where we interview graduate students and postdocs in the sciences about what makes their scientific research awesome and what makes it important to the rest of us, too. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I am one of the hosts of the podcast alongside my co-host, Nicholas Scrutton Alvarado. This podcast is supported and put on by the Science Policy Outreach Task Force at Northwestern University. And at Northwestern, we are so lucky to have a really large and awesome material science and engineering department that tackles all sorts of questions related to materials, design, and characterization for many, many different problems all across the world. And the guest that's joining us today is from that department and has studied some pretty cool stuff, specifically materials with thermoelectric properties. And I cannot wait to find out more about what that actually means and what in the world it can be used for. So joining me here today is Ramya Gurunathan. Ramya is a now graduate of Northwestern University because she recently defended her thesis. So congratulations and welcome, Ramya. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I really enjoyed season one, so this is very exciting. Yay! I'm very excited that we caught you too, like right as you're exiting Northwestern, because now you have all this wonderful science expertise to give us. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, Ramya, what got you into science and what got you into material science specifically? Yeah, that tends to be a fun question to ask material scientists because Unfortunately, and I think this should change, it's not something you're really exposed to normally in K through 12. So everyone has kind of a funny origin story. I think by the time I was in high school, I had a real interest in science and engineering. I had a really great math teacher and was also pretty interested in physics in high school. I was also part of this really fun program. Um, This is actually an international competition called Odyssey of the Mind. And as part of it, you have to perform these technical robotics type challenges on a really low budget. So I spent a lot of time growing up dumpster diving, making things out of trash, tinkering with my neighborhood friend. And that was a nice way to interact with science and engineering outside the classroom. I learned about material science as the product of some great science outreach, actually. I grew up fairly close to Rutgers University, and at least at the time, they held these amazing open days for the general public where departments would just set up like a booth and demonstration and you could just go around and learn. So I met a material science professor there, Dr. Laura Fabrice, who was working on nanomedicine, which I know was a subject discussed in the previous season, Um, looking at how to deliver drugs specifically to cancerous cells. And meeting her, yeah, just really changed my world. I thought it was such a good example of how new materials can really afford new technologies. And I just knew that's what I wanted to study. So I studied that for both my bachelor's and then my PhD. 
It's so funny that you say Odyssey of the Mind because <laughs> I did OM as a kid and like I feel like I never meet other people that did Odyssey of the Mind. So that just made me so happy right there. Oh yeah, I know. I, I thought it was such a great program. I spent a lot of time. I, I mean, you probably know too. It, it takes a bit of work and it's something you can really immerse yourself in. And I think it's such a great program. Yeah. Me too. My my brothers and I were super into it. For, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, just really quick, it's like this really kind of cool, it has a bit of a science twist, like year-long competition program where you're spending months and months and months working on tackling a specific problem and then you're presenting it to judges and an audience. Some of the problems are a little bit more science-y, which I think is what you were describing. I always really liked the more theatrical ones where you're putting on performances, but no matter what the problems were, they were very like problem-solving-esque and really taught you good like I don't know, problem solving, team building skills, all of those things. So I really loved Odyssey of the Mind. It just really tickled me that you did that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they branded it as like a competition in creativity. So as you mentioned, there's really something for everyone. Very cool. And so now that you're in material science, what did you end up studying for your PhD? Yeah, so the group I'm in at Northwestern, uh, we focus on a class of materials called thermoelectric materials. They have this very unique property where they can convert a heat imbalance into electrical power. So by heat imbalance, I mean that one side of the device that your materials go into should be relatively hotter, and then the other side should be relatively colder. There are two major applications of such a technology, which are pretty different. Um, in the first case, there's this opportunity to use excess heat that's produced from an industrial process, say, and convert that into a form of energy you can actually use, electrical power. In the other mode of operation, if you hook up these devices to a battery and provide electrical power, then they operate as a heat pump. So you can use them to transport heat, and that has relevance for cooling technologies like refrigeration or air conditioning. This might be a, a very like fundamental, detailed question, but how does a material get those properties, and how do you study those materials? Yeah, there are definitely varying levels of ways to explain that. I'll choose one that's hopefully relatively simple. In a material, you have carriers of heat. Uh, one of the big ones is actually vibrations of atoms. They carry a lot of heat through a material. And you have carriers of electricity. Uh, so electrons are, are one that we know and love. And so if you have a material that has a hot side and a cold side, you can kind of think of your electrons as like particles in a gas. So when you heat them up, they'll move more and they'll spread out more. So that means that electrons on your hot side are moving more, they're spreading out more, and the result is you have fewer electrons on the hot side, more electrons on the cold side. And when you have a separation of electrons like that, that is a voltage. So that is basically how these materials operate. In theory, every material should do this to a certain extent. Thermoelectric materials do this very efficiently. There are many ways to study them. Material science is guided both by actually making materials and measuring their properties in an experimental sense. 
but there's also a lot of drive from studying these properties theoretically and computationally. That was actually the main form of my PhD. I'm sort of a theoretician in this space. Uh, so I really studied atom vibrations and how they carry heat through these materials uh, from a physics-based theoretical standpoint. And these materials, how long have we been working on them and how integrated are they already into these applications? Great question. So this is an old discipline. I think we just celebrated the 200th like birthday sort of of the discovery of the thermoelectric effect. This is something that Einstein worked on. Several very influential and old scientists have made small contributions to this field. It is already quite integrated into certain types of technology. So one place that thermoelectrics have already made a big splash is actually in extraterrestrial applications and space technology. So one of the reasons why is that you have a lot of constraints when you're trying to power, say, a Mars rover or the Voyager probes, the Cassini, for example. So these space probes are something that require remote power. You don't have access to power outlets or gas stations in space. Um, they need to operate reliably for long periods of time. I mean, the Voyager was launched in 1977 and is still kicking and has left the solar system. And so, yeah, these are, these are some of the constraints. I'd say it's remote and reliable power. I mean, one way that you can remotely power these devices is through solar. Uh, probably a lot of people know that many satellites have solar panels. Um, this has some issues. It can be intermittent. And then once you're far enough away from the sun, it's actually insufficient to power a lot of the electronics on these space probes. So really, the way that all the Mars rovers have been powered, as well as the Voyager probes, are through a technology called radioisotope thermoelectric generators. These have a, a chunk of a radioisotope. It's often plutonium-238. As this radioactive material decays, it releases a ton of heat. Um, you can see pictures of it. It's usually red. That's because it's red hot. Uh, and then you have thermoelectric modules, which are able to convert that heat into electrical power um, to power the devices inside. And that is basically how they run. It's been really impactful for space exploration. Uh, what I think is more on the horizon is actually terrestrial applications of thermoelectrics that us humans can make use of. Um, which are some that I uh, discussed before, like the alternative cooling or refrigeration technologies. Very cool. So it sounds like this is a really good example of where space technology has kind of led the way. And now we just need to explore its use in other things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are the challenges in taking what we already know about these thermoelectric materials and now applying them to these new applications? Like, what are the lingering problems or questions that we need to figure out? One of the real difficulties is that when you develop a thermoelectric material, it usually has an optimal temperature range that it is most efficient for and best suited for. Uh, and we actually have a good set of materials that operate at the high temperature range, um, and those are suited for space technology. 
But for most terrestrial applications that, again, a human would interact with, that should operate well at room temperature. And so just that alternative um, temperature that you have to design for is, is a bit tricky. And one of the major uh, barriers is that we only really have one or two good materials for that temperature range. So the design and discovery of new materials for room temperature thermoelectrics is a big effort. So let's jump into some of these applications because I'm, I'm really curious about how these could potentially be used. In the industrial applications, you're talking about turning this excess heat into power, into something meaningful. What is this excess heat being used for now or how do we get rid of it? That is a great question. Currently in the United States, about 67% of our energy, so two thirds, is just rejected as waste heat. It is unutilized. Uh, and as you mentioned, not only are we wasting this heat, but it's kind of a problem. You have to like figure out what to do with it. So often, um, you know, you use cooling water to remove that heat from sensitive equipment. Um, and in some cases that Cooling water is released at very high temperatures into waterways, which is an additional environmental challenge. If we could use thermoelectrics to manage and then, as I mentioned, recycle that heat into a form we can actually use, that could be really impactful. I also wanted to pause there for a second to sort of emphasize how profound thermoelectric conversion is, if you will. Because thermoelectrics are, are solid devices, um, they can be small, they can be big, that are able to convert from heat, which is a really lossy type of energy. It's not something we can often utilize. It's hard to store, it's hard to transmit over long distances, to electricity, which is something that you know powers our whole world. It's something that we really can make use of. And often to go from heat to electricity, you would require a steam turbine generator where you're creating pressurized steam to spin some shaft. You have all these moving parts. So this is all being done in a small solid device instead for the case of thermoelectrics. Out of curiosity too, what are these materials physically like or how big do the devices need to be in order to accomplish these sorts of things? And the materials themselves are fairly exotic. Uh, one of the best room temperature thermoelectric materials is bismuth telluride. They often rely on heavy elements. Uh, one of the reasons is because uh, these materials should be thermal insulators, um, and often having materials composed of very heavy elements is a way to achieve that. There are not very many good naturally occurring thermoelectric materials that you could dig up from the ground. Uh, so often they need to be synthesized um, in some sort of lab or facility. They can be pretty small. And I think maybe the bigger challenge is how you might scale them up. So I actually have a couple thermoelectric modules that if we were in person, I would show to you. They're about a centimeter by centimeter and you can scale them down pretty easily. So another sort of niche area where they're being used right now is in wearable technology. There is actually a smartwatch. It's the Matrix smartwatch. Um, and it is powered exclusively from your body heat. So those use thermoelectric modules to achieve that effect. 
So yeah, it really is easy to scale down and maybe incorporate into clothing or if you wanted to cool your office chair, um, you can do like distributed personalized cooling. So for these industrial applications, you're talking about two thirds of the energy is wasted. That's first of all, that's insane. Second of all, how much do you think is actually coming from waste from industrial processes and how much thermoelectric materials could actually make a dent into that? Good question. Uh, I'd say the vast majority uh, is coming from industry. Uh, residential is probably a not insignificant, but smaller portion of the overall pie. In terms of the role of thermoelectrics, there's been a lot of barriers to actually integrating them into um, maybe a coal-fired power plant or a nuclear power plant that might be wasting a lot of the energy produced um, in the form of heat. And I think because those industries, you know, they're designed and set up to be as efficient as possible. And so integrating any new technology tends to be very difficult and there's a lot of barriers in the way. Um, I think if this was properly incentivized through policy, that could be facilitated much further. Um, but I just did want to emphasize, uh, I'd say it's use in those industrial applications is really still kind of the more blue skies technology that we're a step away from. Gotcha. And are there any recent examples of policies or decision-making that is related to this sort of support or lack of support for thermoelectric materials? There is for sure. Um, I think when you think about sustainability and alternative fossil fuel sources, those are often very directly a policy issue. Um, and there's one anecdote that I remember hearing a lot about um, recently. This has to do with something called flares. So when you're drilling for oil, it's often the case that you'll hit these pockets of natural gas and it's kind of random as to when you'll find them and they might be too small to really utilize. So instead of trying to harvest that natural gas, it can be either directly released into the atmosphere, uh, which is bad. They're primarily methane and that's a really bad greenhouse gas or it's at least burned, but that's still bad. You're releasing CO2 directly into the atmosphere and you're not utilizing that energy in any way. So um, there was an Obama-era mandate that drilling companies should find some way to utilize that natural gas and the energy produced from these flares. So the flares are when you burn the natural gas. And one really good way to do that is actually with thermoelectric generators, because again, they're modular, it would be easy to install them as at a remote drilling site. And then you could use that heat produced from the flares to actually cultivate some usable electricity. So rather than just wasting it, at least we're getting something out of it. Um, and there was at least one startup company that um, was established to try to develop thermoelectric technology for the specific application. During the Trump administration, uh, that regulation or mandate was repealed. And so this was really a policy decision that very much affected thermoelectric technology. Um, that startup has since been dissolved. And so it was just this like real example of policy really informing um, the progress of thermoelectric technology. 
One of the things that I heard you say is that this technology is modular. Could you explain what you mean by that and why it's really useful for these remote applications? So what I mean by that is that it can be scaled down and is fairly easy to install. And I think one maybe illustrative example of that is when you're thinking about cooling, so air conditioning or refrigeration. Uh, currently, what we used are the um, vapor compression cycles. So these require having some sort of liquid refrigerant that's um, you know, running through these pipes. There's a lot of moving parts in that case. So thermoelectric coolers comparatively are small, quiet, and fairly easy to install in, in anything you might want to include it in. So again, you could design pieces of clothing um, that are cooled using thermoelectric technology. So one reason why I think that's really impactful, again, from the cooling technology standpoint, is because they're really, with the warming climate, there is such a boom in air conditioning and refrigeration needs. This is happening all over the world. Um, my parents who grew up in India, they tell me that this is especially pronounced in India because there are a lot of communities that are um, installing air conditioning and refrigeration for the first time. So you have all these new markets over India as well as parts of Africa. Um, and in some of these cases, there are sort of remote locations where you might want to uh, install this cooling technology. Um, so using thermoelectrics is a really intuitive way. Another thing that thermoelectrics afford is actually a way to really rethink temperature control. Because right now, um, if we wanted to cool your vehicle or your house, you would cool the entire volume of air inside that vehicle or office building or house. What thermoelectrics uh, provide is this opportunity to instead do distributed cooling, where you would cool a piece of clothing or a car seat or office chair. Um, so this is just much more efficient because we're, we're cooling the, the humans who need to be cooled rather than like the entire vehicle or entire office building. Wow, that's super fascinating. <laughs> it brings me to a big question, though. How expensive are thermoelectric materials? Like, how accessible could it really be to these millions and millions of people that now want air conditioners? It does tend to be an expensive technology. Part of the reason is that the material them materials themselves are pretty exotic and pretty expensive. Um, however, a lot of recent like techno-economic analyses have shown that that is not the main driver of the price. It's really the manufacturing of these devices. They're pretty intricate. They involve having a lot of little legs of materials that need to be um, fabricated. So yeah, just to say there's a lot of fabrication costs. There's also components around it that don't have to do directly with the thermoelectrics themselves. You have to have really good heat exchangers, for example. Um, so yeah, the technology itself is pretty expensive. We are at a point where efficiency-wise, it's competitive with vapor compression cycles. So it's competitive with the current refrigeration technology that we use. And I think with increasing research efforts, it is very much the case that um, thermoelectrics can replace current refrigeration technology, especially for some of these markets where, yeah, it would be so much easier if you could have this more modular, easy to install technology.
Awesome. That is really great to hear that people are already starting to tackle that problem because I feel like money is is always one of the big challenges. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. So Ramya, we've covered a lot of ground in a very short episode because this, this material is so fascinating. It has so many applications. But if you wanted to leave us with one thing to remember about all the things you've talked about, what do you want to spotlight? I actually think the thing I wanted to emphasize is related to cooling technology and just encouraging people to think about that for a moment. Both because, as I mentioned, with the warming climate, this is becoming a big problem. We will have a lot of cooling needs. Again, there's new markets for it as well. and a lot of developing economies. So this is a problem, I think, that needs to be addressed. And also just do a sanity check. Like, why are we heating these or cooling these large volumes of air? Um, Why not think about more personalized or distributing temperature control strategies just from an efficiency and practicality perspective? Yeah, maybe that's the nugget I'll leave with people to contemplate on. That is a great note to end on and definitely something to think more about. So thank you so much, Ramya. If if people are listening and they're really curious and want to learn more about the things you've been talking about, is there a way that they could contact you? Yeah, they can feel free to contact me via Twitter. Um, my handle is just at Ramya Gurunathan, um, so my full name, no spaces or anything. Awesome. And thank you so much again, Dr. Guru Nathan, for coming on the podcast and telling us a little bit more about your thesis work. It sounds really, really cool. Of course. Thank you again for having me. This has been really fun. And thank you so much to everyone who's listening as well. Um, I want to remind all of you to rate, review, subscribe, share the podcast with friends and family and people that love science. Um, All of that means so much to us who put on the podcast, and it does help us share the podcast with as many people as possible. And if you want to connect with the podcast on social media, you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at SpotlightThePod. And I want to remind you that this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or also on Twitter, at SPOTForceNU. And finally, a big old shout out to my co-host, Nicholas Scruton Alvarado, who's helping me put this on, and the lovely support from everyone at SPOT. This episode, like all of our episodes, would not be possible without all of them. So thank you so much, and we'll see you back for another episode soon. Thank you.